Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the New Books Network. Shalom Aleichem, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Jewish Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Miriam Charlie Schultz, and I'm currently the Wolf Postdoctoral Fellow at the Antenbaum Center for Jewish Studies and the Center for Diaspora and Transnational Studies at the University of Toronto. And I'm one of the hosts of this channel. I'm really, really happy to welcome Zasha Zenderovic to the show today. He's an assistant professor in Slavic languages and literatures um, at the Jackson School of International Studies at the University of Washington in Seattle, and the author of the brand new and very exciting book, How the Soviet Jew Was Made, which came out earlier this year with Harvard University Press. Yiddishland recently commemorated the 17th uh, site of the most famous Soviet Yiddish writers who were executed on August 12, 1952, the climax of the anti-Jewish purges under late Stalinism. And some of these writers also figure prominently in this wonderful book. So it is high time that we, we're having this important conversation. And without further ado, hello, Zasha, and wonderful to have you and welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Let's start off by you telling us a little bit about yourself and how you came to write How the Soviet Jew Was Made. Um, so uh, there's probably a couple of ways to think about this. Uh, I, you know, as my name is, you know, makes it clear, Sasha Sandorovich, I grew up in the Soviet Union uh, at, you know, at the very end of the Soviet period. Uh, I was born in 1981, uh, but, you know, and my family immigrated when I was 16. So, uh, you know, I'm obviously, you know, given sort of my age and time when I grew up, I was, you know, interested in some of these questions, you know, kind of autobiographically, I suppose. Uh, the kind of earliest link in my own memory is to my great grandmother, who was born in 1910 in Ukraine um, and, uh, you know, ended up, I grew up in, in Ufa. In the in the Urals, uh, which is where the family ended up through various waves of displacement uh, in the 1920s, uh, kind of 
as far as I could tell, my grand grandmother ended up there kind of after pogroms uh, in Ukraine uh, at the you know after the revolution, and then of course during the Second World War. So, uh, in some ways, you could think that like you know I was sort of curious about those things. <laughs> uh, but then there is you know this book is not an autobiography, <laughs> uh, and I uh, you know to the extent possible, you know, kind of the ways that I frame questions were really kind of cultural, historical in ways that were really quite distant from my own time. So um, the intellectual kind of uh, interest, I suppose, uh, I could trace to something like, uh, you know, an undergraduate class 20 years ago on Soviet literature, uh, where we were reading some Isaac Babel. Uh, and I had read Babel earlier uh, as, as a child, actually. My mother read some Babel to me. Uh, but then I reread it, obviously, as a 20-something-year-old uh, and uh, was really struck by Red Cavalry, uh, was struck by what I began to understand was, you know, this kind of multilingual play that was going on in what was ostensibly a Russian-language work, but that through Bible's writing, was really also focusing in on other kinds of speech, among them what I was beginning to identify as Yiddish, right? As having that's written in, something that's written in Russian by Bible, but as having what I would come to call in the book kind of an implied original uh, that isn't Russian. So, uh, you know, I sort of began to wonder at that sort of 20-year-old level about those things back then. Uh and, uh, you know, then I went to grad school and I started learning Yiddish and um, and kind of the way that these questions opened up became very different. Uh, and uh, so, you know, I did a dissertation, uh, a, a very different, much worse version <laughs> of this work <laughs> was once a part of my dissertation, uh, which is, you know, like most everyone else I know, I, uh, I hated, uh, passionately after I submitted it. Uh, and then, uh, so that was in 2010, 2011. Uh, and then I took a kind of circuitous route, uh, away from this project, uh, in part to actively procrastinate and ignore it, uh, in part because of the job market situation, uh, which is very common to many of us, uh, that those of us who are lucky to end up with something take often very circuitous journeys to that goal during which it's not clear that a book is something one should work on. Uh, so I worked on other things uh, that were unrelated to this, you know, writing about later literature, kind of post-Soviet Jewish immigrant literature, uh, and also beginning to translate. And this to me is actually an important way back into the project. So Around 2014, I began to translate together with Harriet Murav uh, a novel by David Bergelson uh, called Midas Hadin, uh, which we translated as Judgment and published in 2017. Uh, and that process of translation with another person who is a major scholar in the field of studying Soviet Jewish culture and also Russian Jewish culture and Yiddish culture in the in Russia and the Soviet Union uh, was just an amazing intellectual experience uh, of becoming very intimately acquainted with the text um, 
in ways that became very clear for me was actually where the story that I needed to tell in this book began. Uh, and that's not something I had known until I translated. So uh, I think kind of starting with, you know, what I told you, kind of thinking about Isaac Bible as a 20-year-old, as playing with translation uh, in his Russian uh, language writing to then translating from Yiddish, a kind of a Soviet era work, uh, made me sort of aware that uh, the questions I were asking involved these kinds of questions. And, you know, here I am, how the Soviet Jew was made. Great. Thank you. So as is well known, Soviet Jewry is probably the best studied minority of the Soviet Union. And I was wondering if you could lay out for us how previous scholarship has made the Soviet Jew, if you will, and how your book intervenes, contradicts and or confirms previous work on the subject. And finally, could you introduce us to the methods you used to achieve this? I'm thinking here specifically about the sources you use, timeframes and theories you engage with. Uh, thank you for this question. Uh, so I think I'll, I'll break this down into kind of three sub-issues and I'll get to methods at the end. That would be third. <laughs> uh, and first, uh, I'll talk about historical scholarship. Uh, then I'll talk about literary scholarship. Uh, and then I'll talk about kind of how I come to this. So when you talk, when you ask about previous scholarship, um, I think when we think about Jews of, from Russia, Russian Empire, and then the Soviet Union, we have to grapple with the fact that the field is really dominated by historians and worked by historians. So uh, the studies of the imperial period are critical, right? This is not at all what I'm working on. I work on something that begins in 1917. Uh, but of course, I'm you know familiar with the works of Stephen Zipperstein, Michael Stanislavski, Sharon Fries. Uh, the historians uh, of, you know, Russian Jewry, uh, Jewry in the Russian Empire, uh, it, you know, before the revolution. So when we begin to think about Soviet Jews in particular, as opposed to Jews who were subjects of the Russian Empire, uh, you know, I think that the, 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 the attention begins to pop up in broader like, and I'm thinking last, you know, 20, 30 years. I'm not here going deep into the, you know, earlier history. Uh, so scholars of Soviet history, like Terry Martin, Francine Hirsch, uh, who have, who worked on the kind of multi-ethnic nature of the Soviet Union, particularly in the, you know, the, the first couple of decades after the revolution. So Terry Martin's affirmative action empire, thinking about the kind of promotion of national ethnic cadres uh, in, in different contexts in the Soviet Union. And Francine Hirsch, who kind of thought about ethnography, anthropology, sociology, demography, and kind of the way that the Soviet state counted different minority groups. Uh, and the you know, Jews obviously pop up there uh, uh, as as one of the um, you know groups that are important to think about. Uh, so if we think about history and Soviet Jews specifically, people who begin to write kind of more deliberately about Jews as the main protagonists of these works, as opposed to one of the many characters. Uh, 
you know, I would think that the kind of Cold War era historiography is uh, important here, uh, which is not often done by historians. So there's some kind of edited volumes, journals uh, that are very much part of the Cold War era Soviet Jewry movement, uh, the the movement to, you know, advocate on behalf of Jews from the Soviet Union emigrated, emigrating out of the Soviet Union. So 1960s, 70s, and 80s uh, framed very much in kind of Cold War terms. Uh, and, you know, there is an interest in understanding, you know, demographic trends and and kind of the, the historical tragedy of the late Stalin era. Uh, so... Uh, and this culminates probably in like a popular history from 2010, 2011. I can't remember the year exactly by Gal Beckerman, uh, this kind of long book uh, on the Soviet Jewry movement, uh, which is largely kind of self-congratulatory to, to, to Jews in the West uh, for having done such a, an awesome job getting the Soviet Jews out. So, you know, I think Soviet Jews emerge in these kinds of works as a figure that needs to be understood so that it can be better rescued, uh, saved, uh, reunited with a religious tradition that had been abandoned, had been forced to abandon uh, in those kinds of terms. Everything I'm saying is, you know, in air quotes, right? I'm sort of summarizing my impression of this particular scholarship. So, uh, so then, if you think again, we're still on the topic of history. Uh, it's really last, you know, decade and a half or so uh, that we begin to see really fantastic, really important, you know, wonderful work by, you know, younger generation of historians who are trained in Jewish history, but also trained in Russian history and Soviet history. Uh, people like Elisa Bemporad, uh, who had a you know really important book on the Jews of Minsk. Uh, uh, that was his first first book, and you know the recent book on the kind of legacy on blood libels and pogroms into the you know Soviet era. Uh, Andrew Sloin, uh, who who did an important work on kind of the labor movement uh, in Soviet Belarusia uh, and Jews. Uh, Brandon McGeever, uh, who has an important book on, on race and pogroms uh, of the Civil War. Uh, and uh, Jeffrey Weidlinger, uh, his last couple of books, uh, he, you know, he, he, he had first written some books on imperial history and then switched over into moved into the Soviet era history. So really important book on the Soviet shtetl uh, that's uh, kind of based on a lot of ethnographic sources uh, from like Quite kind of quite recent uh, from various you know field work uh, in in the former shtetls of Ukraine, <laughs> uh, but really trying to with the help of those interviews and some history to try to reconstruct the history of the Soviet shtetl after the war after the Second World War, uh, and also his uh, recent book in the midst of civilized Europe of a civilized Europe, uh, which is a book about pogroms of the Russian Civil War, 1918 to 1921, uh, which just came out in paperback. Uh, and the subtitle now says Pogroms in Ukraine, uh, 1981, 1921. So, uh, which is also very important, uh, of course, given what's happening right now in the world, but also for the kind of correct understanding of this history. So I've learned from these historians, uh, but I am not an historian. <laughs> uh, so when you do literary studies, it's impossible not to engage with historians, uh, given 
that this is where most of the scholarship has happened. Uh, but I hope I bring something else to it. And I'll talk about this in a, in a couple of minutes. So then kind of the second part is the literary scholarship bit of this, right? Thinking about kind of where, how that plays out. And again, I'm thinking about the last, let's say, 30 years. <laughs> uh, so we can think about it as roughly dividing into what might be called a question of Russian Jewish literature uh, or, or and or something that really uh, kind of frames the question as around the literature and culture of Jews in Russia or the Soviet Union. And those two things are not always synonymous. Uh, so kind of let me explain. So uh, folks who have concerned themselves with Russian Jewish literature, Alice Nechimovsky is probably the most important uh, American scholar who kind of you know, pioneered in many ways this field in the early 90s, uh, has a book on Russian Jewish literature, um, where the question really, where the Russian really means language, right? So... Uh, and Jewish is an adjective modifying literature alongside Russian, right? So the, the sort of questions about how and if and in what ways do Jews, Jewish writers, Jewish writing, however that's defined, which itself is a big question, belong in something that might be called the Russian literary tradition. Uh, so... You know, Alice Himovsky wrote about Isaac Barbin, Vasily Grossman, some other authors. This is often kind of author-based uh, approaches uh, and uh, kind of really thinking about these kinds of questions, right? To, to what extent do they contribute as Jews to Russian literary culture? But it's about engagement with Russian literature. Uh, so... Um, and you can think of other works that followed. Uh, so Ephraim Zicher has a book about Russian Jews and the Russian Revolution, uh, about Jews and the Russian Revolution, that, you know, thinks about Isaac. But there's some always kind of cast of characters tend to repeat. Uh, there's, I can't think of a single book that doesn't have Bible in it, including my own, of course. <laughs> so I'm guilty as anybody else. Uh, but hopefully with kind of a different approach. Uh uh, there is uh, Maxim Shire has an anthology from 2007 that's a two-volume anthology of Jewish-Russian writing. He insists on calling it Jewish-Russian as opposed to Russian-Jewish for various sort of ideological reasons. Uh, there's Murat Greenberg, uh, who's written on kind of Soviet poetry and, and Jews. Uh, so, but I think in, 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 in many ways, the questions here are about the Russian literary tradition and the place of Jews in it uh, and their contributions to it. Uh, so on the other hand, right, if we frame the question as being concerned with this sort of broader context of uh, how Jews, you know, are kind of framed and you know are, are made in some ways right in in the culture in Soviet culture. Uh, Harriet Murab's work is really indispensable. Her 2011 book *Music from a Speeding Train*, uh, which is a first major work to really 
go beyond that question of Russian literature uh, by looking at Russian language sources side by side with the Yiddish language sources. And then the questions really are different, right? You begin to see, and I think Harriet, Harriet Murav's book really does this really compellingly, that Yes, Bible is great and important, but <laughs> right, he see he begins to look less sui generis when you read him alongside Bergelson, uh, and you begin to identify the broader circle of contemporaries and the broader uh, resonance of questions uh, that come up. So, uh, I mean, I can't imagine writing my book without Harriet Murav's having written hers, uh, and I think there. Other works in you know in in the pipeline uh, that that are also really motivated by that work, um, and you know there's Amelia Glazer and and her important work both in the 19th century but also into the 20th century that also adds Ukrainian language context uh, to the Russian and the Yiddish, which is also really important. Her book from a couple of years ago on uh, on the party-aligned Yiddish poets, including Soviet ones, but not only, uh, also American uh, Yiddish poets, uh, uh, is really also very important in the way that kind of places Soviet Jews into a kind of bigger global context uh, of the 1920s and 1930s. So, uh, so to me, uh, like I'm really uh, grateful to to uh, to scholars like Harriet Murav and Emilia Glazer, especially for uh, kind of paving the way for this other way of framing questions, uh, which does bring Yiddish very importantly into the conversation, uh, and uh, kind of opens up the questions that way. Uh, and I think also given you, you and I are talking at, you know, it's September 2022, where in the seventh month of this, you know, major Russian military invasion into Ukraine. Uh, and I think we're also beginning to see things. I mean, we should have seen them that way before, but I think they're clearer now how the word Russian also is maybe inapplicable to the question of Jews in the Russian Empire and in the Soviet Union. Uh, you know, I didn't, I, when I talked to you about my kind of issues with the term Russian Jewish literature, I was talking to me about language, but there's also a bigger question, like, what exactly makes them Russian? <laughs> uh, and, you know, something clearly does, but that has to do with power relations, and it has to do with empire, and it has to do with these bigger questions that I think some of the earlier scholarship just sort of wasn't attuned to uh, uh, as you know many other kind of scholarly works in say Russian literary culture also weren't so I think this is also in an important moment when uh, you know my book was already in press when Russia invaded Ukraine in February uh, so I couldn't write a new forward to try to really draw out this question but I, I, I write about Ukraine quite extensively in the book, and I don't assume for I don't use the word Russian, <laughs> right? Because to me, it was not a word that was useful uh, to this conversation when we talk about Jews uh, in the Soviet period. So this is kind of long, kind of scholarship bit, and then methods. <laughs> what do I bring to this that uh, 
you know, builds on the work of others, argues with the work of others, right? As all scholarship does, uh, we we have our arguments and we we have our uh, ways to build on others' work. Uh, I'm a I'm a scholar of literature and culture, right? So I'm not an historian, and as a scholar of literature and culture who can write after you know, Alice Nahimovsky had written her book and Harriet Murav had written hers. Uh, those kinds of books, those books are very different, as I said, but they are also important uh, texts that lay out a broader, let's call it, historiography of literature. So Harriet Murav's book is about the 20th century, right? So it's, it's a span of the 20th century. Um I think I now had the luxury to begin to focus on shorter periods of time more intensely. Uh, so my book is about the first two decades after 1917 uh, for particular reasons that I go into in the book. Uh, but as a scholar of literature, it allows me to do the thing that I love doing best, which is close reading to uh to really each chapter focuses on a text, on like a major central text, and it allows for that text to guide the questions that I raise. Uh, and of course, it leads me to all kinds of other texts, right? These are not very long chapters about, you know, only very few sources. I work with many sources beyond that. But there is something like a main uh literary text or a film that keeps me grounded. Uh, and, uh, you know, my method, if there is such a thing, is to toggle between, uh, you know, close readings of, you know, details of the text to some questions that they raise for me and then tapping into the contextual, historical, cultural works uh, that, uh, you know, they can elucidate. Okay, great, thank you. Um, so let's move on and actually into the into your book. Um, in my reading of your book, uh, you are yourself drawing a figure of the Soviet Jew with the help of the sources that you engage with. And he and the pronoun is deliberate here appears almost like a palimpsest, never static or easy to be pinned down. And yet there are somewhat clear contours of what this figure is or better yet is supposed to be. So in rough strokes, can you walk us through the production process, as it were, um, of the Soviet Jew in the different contexts, genres, times and places that you explore in the five chapters of your book? And then afterwards, we go into each chapter separately. Yeah, thank you. Uh, so first, to your you, you rightly point out the pronoun. <laughs> He, uh, and I, I explain this in the book, uh, right, that's in the introduction, also come back to this throughout the different chapters. Uh, this is not because I'm inattentive to questions of gender, but rather because I am attentive to questions of gender. Uh, the kind of on the, on the side of kind of European Jewish history, modern European Jewish history, uh, Jew is, uh, is is understood as as male as a figure who is male uh, in various you know discourses about uh, 
granting civil rights to Jews in various European contexts uh, that often has to do with, you know, service in the army, this kind of male tasks, but also later in Zionism, right, where the figure emerges of kind of the the new Jew who really is a man. Uh, And then on the Soviet side, there's also the new Soviet man who has his own cult. (laughs) Uh, And and the Soviet Jew is in some ways a kind of, you know, interrelated being coming out of those things. but I'm I'm attentive to questions of gender throughout. Uh, uh, the way that that figure is constructed as male obviously also means writing about uh, other people who are not that's constructed. Uh, so that's just a, kind of a brief, uh, but kind of to your question of the brief strokes of of how I see the Soviet Jew. So uh, it's you know it's a little pointillist, uh, right? It's kind of painting a dot here, a dot here, a dot here, and connecting them into a narrative. The book does have something like a narrative arc. Uh, but because I'm not doing a survey, right, of everything that was written at this time, or even, you know, close to most things that were written at this time, uh, it, it seems like, uh, you know, kind of a series of case studies, right? So, uh so what is a Soviet Jew according to my recipe, right? How the Soviet Jew was made. Sometimes I joke that this is not a cookbook. Uh, but if you think about the ingredients, right? Uh, the, the trauma of the pogroms of the Civil War as a starting point and the point of origin for what happens immediately or very soon after the grantings of equal rights to Jews, uh, by the provisional government in 1917, and then the maintenance of those rights by the Bolsheviks in October, and then the breakout of the, uh, you know, what comes to be called the civil war that, you know, engulfs Ukraine, engulfs, uh, you know, what then becomes part of Poland and other places. Um, and that violence of pogroms and the displacement uh caused by pogroms, to me, is the origin point uh, of the Soviet Jew. Uh, in kind of the questionnaires in the second chapter is about modernization uh, and the way that the Soviet power ideologically and in other ways uh, yanks, you know, the population that had lived in the former pillar settlement into, you know, this kind of Soviet industrial modernity. So what does it mean uh, for, in in the case study that I look at, you know, a kind of comically portrayed Jewish family that never leaves the place where they always left, uh, where they'd always lived, but uh, this completely new world comes to them. Uh, Then uh, I think about kind of official discourses in in the early Soviet era, era about what a Soviet Jew could be and where Soviet Jew could uh, be a kind of reformed version of of a Jew that had existed in imperial period. So no longer, you know, a shopkeeper or a tradesman or a small artisan, you know, kind of fixing shoes somewhere in the shtetl, but a tiller of the soil and a worker in the factory. Uh, so uh, it's important to think about Birabidjan, the Jewish autonomous region uh, that's set up in the late 1920s in the Far East, uh, in the Soviet Far East on the border with uh, Manchuria. Uh, as the kind of flashpoint <laughs> for for these official discourses, but also think about how uh, Jews who had left 
the Russian Empire prior to the revolution are interested in the Soviet project as this kind of, you know, project of self-reforging into a new kind of being uh, and return to the Soviet Union to kind of put themselves through that experience. Uh, So that's chapters three and four. And then in chapter five, you know, I come back to my first law of Isaac Bible, but with fresh eyes. (laughs) Uh, And, uh, you know, see him as you know, an important uh, a translator uh, of uh, what this figure could look like if we look at the way that he engages with this kind of persistent uh, theme of from Jewish folklore that I identify in all of his works uh, and how he thinks between Russian and Yiddish constantly. Uh, and uh, that chapter is in some ways... Uh, a kind of you could think of it as a sort of chronological survey of what I had already written in the first four chapters. So I go back to the period of the Civil War uh, to start, uh, and then end with uh, the the 1930s. Uh, and let me just say, kind of also in broad, broad strokes about the the time frame and uh, uh, and kind of what I'm doing. So I'm uh, interested in, in some ways, I think the key to, to, to all of these ingredients <laughs> uh, of, of what makes the Soviet Jew, according to me, <laughs> uh, is a kind of persistence of the pale of settlement beyond its, its expiration date. Right? So the pale of settlement where Jews were restricted to live uh, in the imperial period is abolished by the provisional government in 1917. Uh, but I'm really interested in how for the next two decades it's still there, uh, both physically and geographically as an area where many Jews still live, but also as a kind of lingering you know, baggage trope, a collection. It's really hard to describe it exactly, a collection of traits and artifacts that get dis, you know dis, dispersed uh, in other into other both geographic areas of the Soviet Union like you know the Far East in Biribijan, uh, but also non-geographically but linguistically and culturally and pop up in in various places where the Soviet project itself would seem to um, have done away with them so uh, so to me like that's quite interesting and of course, you know that does need that there there is a break breaking point there with the beginning of the second world war uh when you know a, a book that deals with the pale and the holocaust as a whole separate <laughs> undertaking and obviously also what happens after so in some ways jeff weidlinger had written a book about the soviet shtetl after the war uh i'm i'm interested in kind of the first two decades uh a reinvestigation of the first two decades um, that that's framed, you know, 1917 to the late 1930s. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. 
Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Great. Um, okay, so let's dig a little deeper and let's talk about this, um, I guess, original trauma, foundational trauma, which are, as you rightly put it, not the Holocaust, of course, but the wave of pogroms during the Civil War um, between 1918 and 1921. Um, so let's talk about the source that you're focusing on, which is David Bergelson, Midas Hadin. Um, so why did you choose Bergelson's text specifically? What does this text offer to discuss the pogroms? And then also, how does the specter of the pogrom and anti-Semitism specifically shape the making of the Soviet Jew through your reading of Bergelson? So as I mentioned uh, earlier, this is the text that I translated together with Harriet Murav. And both of us were interested in this text for very different reasons. Uh, but we had one interest in common. Uh, and that, that interest in common was that, you know, we, we had a sense as people who'd come to Yiddish uh, not right away, but through our initial interests in Soviet culture, uh, that Bergelson, you know, a major modernist writer who'd published his, you know, really important and most known novels, you know, by, you know, 1920, <laughs> uh, was really misunderstood by Yiddishists after the war, Yiddishists in the West, uh, Yiddishists in the United States, but not only, uh, uh, in that uh, his, um, you know, he, he ended up moving to Berlin as many Jews who were, you know, fleeing Ukraine uh, at the time of violence did. Uh so he is there at the same time as as Shimon Dubnov, as um, uh, as um, many other writers uh, uh, who you know who, who who go on to to Palestine to to America in some cases, and in some cases return like Bergelson would in the nineteen thirties to the Soviet Union. So there was a sense of Bergelson created in kind of Western academia of you know, somebody who is this great modernist writer who sells out to the Bolsheviks in the mid-1920s, and then everything that he writes between roughly 1926 and his death and execution, you know, on Stalin's orders 70 years ago, 1952, is basically not worth reading because it's, you know, pure propaganda. So here was this text from, you know, that he began writing in the mid-1920s in serial form, uh, serializing in different publications, and then published as a book in 1929. In one edition came out in Kiev in the Soviet Union, and the other edition came out in uh, Vilna, which was in Poland. Uh, you know, how do we approach this kind of work? Is this truly, you know, this kind of propaganda that we shouldn't read? As you know, Ruth Weiss and other, you know, scholars like that had sort of told us. Uh, or do we read it in some way that tells us something different? So that was my inherent Morales kind of 
desire to translate this text. We kind of understood it to be pivotal, uh, is that transitional text between the quote-unquote good Bergelson and quote-unquote bad Bergelson. Uh, and so for, for Harriet Murav, this uh, be, you know became a part of a, a really important book that she wrote on Bergelson's entire oeuvre. Uh, there is no other such book, <laughs> right, that sort of tackles the entirety of you know, this really important writer through multiple phases and really sees continuities, um, right? Very important continuities. And for me, as I mentioned later, this became much later in understanding that this is really the beginning of my book. Uh, and when I say that I'm a close reader, I'm often a kind of close reader that's fir- that, who is first energized by something that seems barely noticeable or even counterintuitive and not what ostensibly the work is about. And so conventionally, this novel in what exists has existed of English language writing about it uh, before Harriet and I jumped into the fray uh, was that, oh, this is a novel about kind of adoring Bolsheviks and a, a, a sort of, a, a, you know, a kind of hosanna to to the you know a, a, a celebration uh, of the of the Bolshevik regime uh, uh, and to me and to Harriet also this was not right when you read it in the Soviet context it becomes a book that's much more complicated and then to me it became clear that this is also a book that's really about pogroms pogroms aren't obvious in the book. This isn't the book that describes in vivid detail the violence of pogroms of the time. Violence is referred to obliquely. Uh, And as I began to think about it after we had published our translation and rereading our translation, also teaching our translation for the first time to my own students, I realized that this is maybe what's really key for Bergelson, at least for my reading of Bergelson. This is a work permeated by anxiety about how pogroms that had already been perpetrated in this shtetl where Bergelson sets the, sets the story, uh, perpetrated possibly by the whites, who were monarchists, possibly by some nationalist Ukrainian forces, possibly by some other roving bands of marauders. There are many actors uh, and Jeff Weidlinger writes about this in detail in his uh, recent book, uh, that the characters in that novel who are at the point of the plot in the novel are ruled over by a Bolshevik are really anxious (laughs) about the return of these other forces because the Bolsheviks who rule them don't seem like they're there to stay that they want to stay, but the way that the novel is written is dwelling on the highly questionable fact of whether they would be able to stay. So Bjelgelsen writes this from the point of view of the 1920s when he does know how the story ends, right? He does know that the Bolsheviks are able to maintain control over those areas of Ukraine, but I think he's very deliberately putting us in the mind of protagonists who don't know that. Right, who live in 1920, not in 1925 and 1926. So uh, to me, this is a novel with which we can engage that history as though it were still happening. Right, Try to read that book in the context of 
other writing about pogroms already available at the time, uh, including in Russian uh, and published by then. That's sort of one context. Another context is the main protagonist of this book is a non-Jewish Bolshevik, uh, who is a, a kind of a combination of a border guard and a, you know, kind of he is in charge of the secret police, the Cheka unit that's guarding the this outpost against smugglers, against counter-revolutionaries, and Jews in this town are intermeshed <laughs> with all of those forces. Uh, uh, how that figure can be read and should be read, and I read it in the book, is one of many portrayals of the Czechist uh, in Soviet literature uh, that's, you know, out there by the mid-1920s and, you know, available to Bergelsen, but also available in the larger, you know, ether uh, of of what's circulating. So so that's sort of what I do with this book uh, and uh, read it uh, not the way that the book tends to be summarized, uh, but but instead I sort of see its major uh, plot as as this kind of subdued, somewhat hidden, but easily discoverable, if you look for it, sense of anxiety about where this is all going, that the Bolshevik power is very tenuous. Uh, it's not a celebration of the Bolshe- of Bolshevik power. Uh, and it's sort of fraught with anxiety. Yeah, tied into that, I mean, another leitmotif of your book are exactly these transitions. Everything is constantly in flux. Um, We can talk about this temporally, but also generationally, ideologically, from the day before the revolution to the day after. So the book is about how the past holds a sway over the present also, and what this does to the potential of achieving communism, in my reading at least. And one place where this becomes apparent is in chapter two, in which you discuss Moshe Kulbach's phenomenal family saga, the, the Zermanianus. Um, so first of all, very straightforward, who are the Zermanianus? <laughs> who are the Zermanianus? So, uh, so something that I, I guess I should also say is that uh, something that I hope would uh, happen to those people who decide to read my book is that if they don't know this underlying literature that I write about, that it is now available in the English translation and it's relatively newly available, right? So Bergelsen was translated by Harriet Marvin Me in 2017. Uh, Zelminianer is a work by Moshe Kulbach, uh, who uh, was uh, born in kind of Belarusian, Lithuanian borderlands at the end of the 19th century, lived in Vilna for a long time, uh, lived in Berlin for for a while, uh, and then came to Minsk in the Soviet Union uh, in the 1920s and set this novel, he's mostly known as a poet, uh, as a wonderful poet who is very engaged with nature. uh, And it's evident also in this novel that he's also thinking about these um, kind of poetic language. Uh, But it's a book about this... uh, uh, you know, family in Minsk in the 1920s. So it was, it's also now fully translated into English, came out in 2012. Uh, it's translated by Hillel Hawken. 
uh, and it's with Yale University Press. Uh, so my relationship with this text is also quite intimate. I didn't translate it, but I edited Hillel Hawkins' translation, <laughs> uh, a fraught process about which I may one day write a memoir, uh, but uh, that uh, resulted in also kind of a deep knowledge and appreciation for these texts and the nuances for this text. Uh, the the translation into English has my introduction, uh, but it's you know not in any way what I read about in the chapter because I sort of didn't want to be too scholarly uh, in the in the introduction to the translation. So the Zalminyaners are a family. Uh, their their progenitor, their paterfamilias, is named Zelmele. Uh, and he is dead at the time that the beginning that the novel begins. So his progeny is known as you know Zelmela's children, the Zelmenianers. Uh, so it works as a kind of as a sort of patronomial. Uh, not really, they have a different last name, which is very funny. Uh, I don't want to go into it, but I go into it in the book. Uh, you know, a very important kind of so in terms of Soviet culture, what their last name is. Uh, and there, there are four generations of Zelminianers uh, coexisting, living at the same time, kind of on top of each other. Uh, uh, so Reb Zelmela's widow, uh, their uh, four children and their wives, who are referred to as uncles and aunts. Uh, so the four children that we know about in this book are all men. Uh, there are three women that are also mentioned uh, as being daughters of Reb Zelmele, but about whom there are no chapters. <laughs> so that's what I mean when I talk about how the Soviet Jews coded as male. Uh, uh, one of the things that I mean. Uh, and then these uncles have children of their own uh, who are the generation that's really enthused by the Bolshevik Revolution, who are... They're born still before the revolution, but they're really coming of age and growing up and becoming their own adult persons, you know, kind of with the revolutionary winds in their back. Uh, and those are beginning to have babies, right? So we're kind of have the beginnings of like a truly Soviet-born generation too. Uh, and they all live in the same space called a hoif, uh, for which there isn't the great, English translation, but courtyard uh, is the way that uh, I I think of the space. Uh, you know, kind of a typical East European uh, housing unit uh, with houses located around a shared common space where you would hang laundry to dry on a clothesline where children would play. You know, there might be some sort of other structures there, uh, but it's a place where it's impossible to have any privacy, where it's you know, everybody knows, it, you know, about everybody else's business. So this is the place that's somewhere on the outskirts of Minsk. Uh, and in the in the novel that Kulbach writes from 1929 until 1935, and it's a serially published novel, uh, and I learned from my Russian literature PhD advisor, uh, Bill Todd, uh, who is this called of 19th century Russian literature, but the importance of reading serially published literature in its serial publication, right? Not as books that then come out, uh, but also as, you know, one of the many things that appear in a periodical at any given time, because then you read things that are also in that periodical, and then you begin to understand contextually what's happening. So between 1929 and 1935, the city of Minsk grows, 
and it approaches and swallows this courtyard. Uh, courtyard becomes something like a, you know, a stand-in for what the shtetl meant in Soviet ideological discourse at the time. Uh, Moishe Kulbak had a day job in Minsk. He worked as a stylistic editor in the Jewish uh, section, Jewish department of the Belarusian Academy of Sciences, where he edited, and I've looked through the publications of the sort that were coming out, you know, there were kind of social studies, demographic, sociological studies about, you know, Jews in the shtetl uh, with an eye towards understanding how to make them Soviet, right? To understand all of their faults that were a result of, you know, imperial rule and oppression and uh, kind of bad economics, et cetera, et cetera, uh, how to make them Soviet. Uh, and he, kind of knowing that discourse, comes to it as a satirist in this novel uh, and creates something that could be read as, you know, as a satire in those official discourses that also becomes a sort of um, uh, uh, repository. The novel itself, I see it as a repository of rapidly changing practices, right? So again, he's catching, with Bergelson, I'm thinking about people living through a moment of anxiety. Here, I'm thinking about Kulbach catching people in the moment of transition uh, where things are really very fuzzy. (laughs) They're not neatly divided uh, between Jewish and Soviet, as I think uh, people want to (laughs) divide. Uh, People want to, we, we, a lot of scholars, but also kind of lay readers, want to see things as, you know, this is Soviet, this is Jewish. Uh, here, it's truly the beginning, the making of Soviet Jewish or of the Soviet Jew, uh, that you have to keep the Soviet part in mind as well as the Jewish part. They exist in a balance. So uh, so this is who the Zelmanianers are. And Kulbach takes them from, you know, kind of much more funny initial chapters of the novel to something that becomes quite dark um, and grim towards the end uh, as he takes us from, you know, the very beginning of Stalin's reign in 1929 uh, and the tail end of the new economic policy under Lenin and the introduction of electricity and radio and literacy campaigns and all kinds of other sort of revolutionary uh, discourses to, you know, the beginnings of, to, to, to the height of Stalinism, really, uh, and sort of what it means for this family, uh, and ultimately, in some ways, for Kulbach, too, who was arrested and executed in 1937. Um, yeah, and in the ne- next chapter, uh, we transition from Zelmanishof, uh, Hoif in, in Minsk to Birubijan, the very thing that makes um, Jews Soviet as well. Um, so why don't you talk more about um, the role of Birubijan in, in your book in chapter three and um, what this place, um, what role this place plays um, in the making of the Soviet Jew in your reading of it? Uh, Birubijan is fascinating. I've never been. <laughs> Maybe one day I'd go. I'm not sure that I, it's unclear whether I'll ever be able to go to Russia again, <laughs> given what's going on. But um, 
you know, to, to those listeners who don't know, and many people don't know, uh, many people are always surprised when I mention that such a place exists. So uh, this is a, a, you know, a, a region in the far east of what's now Russia, was then the Soviet Union, uh, where, uh, you know, in late 1920s, uh, the regime set up, um, kind of designated that place as a, kind of a national home for Jews in the Soviet Union. Uh, the reason that they did it were multifold, manifold. Uh, one is Jews were a, a kind of a problem for the Soviet uh, state to understand in terms of its approaches to the multicultural aspect of the new Soviet, really, empire. Uh, so this Francine Hirsch uh for example, among historians deals with this question, uh, but also others of how different ethnic groups were categorized in the Soviet Union uh, and that the ones who were kind of titular na- you know, nations in specific regions had a connection to a specific you know, piece of land, a region, historic connection, uh, and to a language, right? So kind of very straightforward with Ukrainians, with Belarusians, with... Uh, uh, eventually with Armenians and Georgians, and I mean, not right away, but eventually in the Soviet period. Uh, so people who have a kind of specific historic, you know, territory to which they're historically connected in a language. So Jews were a problem because, you know, again, here's where we think about the pale of settlement, <laughs> right? You can't say that the place where Jews were restricted by rights of residence as a minority among Belarusians and Ukrainians and Poles and, uh, you know, Romanians <laughs> uh, could be, you know, could become a Jewish territory. That was never an argument, though there were uh, projects to set up Crimea uh, as, a, as, a Jewish, uh, as a Jewish kind of designated region, and those didn't work out for various reasons. It's really weird to think of a counter history where it might have. Uh, uh, so uh, so there's this piece of land on the border with Manjuria that is important for security reasons. Uh, you know, this is Japan's kind of expansionist imperial rule at the time. Uh, the Russian Empire had conquered that territory from one of the Chinese dynasties in the middle of the 19th century and has only very tenuously held it. Uh, and required uh, a mass deportation and resettlement of Cossacks from uh, uh, kind of near Baikal, Lake Baikal, to this region kind of a thousand miles east so that there is more population uh, that's, you know, Russian population uh, in that area. Um, so, and that the language, official language of this territory would be Yiddish. Uh, so the Soviets here are thinking about something which is a kind of antidote to Zionism. Uh, the project in a very Bajan mirrors the Zionist settlement in Palestine, which is obviously then under British rule, but very actively, you know, part of the kind of global political discourse, uh, and it's kind of a weird, crooked mirror image, right? Its own place that also needs to be where the you know dr- you know swamps need to be drained and you know agriculture needs to be established. So the same kind of labor discourses and labor Zionism, 
uh, an agricultural kind of central discourse as in, in Zionism and Palestine. Uh, the language is Yiddish and not Hebrew because Hebrew is the language of the religious cult. I'm quoting official Soviet language here, <laughs> not speaking as myself, of course, uh, but also increasingly as the language of the kind of bourgeois nationalist movement that Soviets come to see Zionism as. Uh, uh, and, you know, Yiddish is the language of the kind of Jewish working class, the Jewish masses. Uh, so it's important to think about how the Soviet Jew was made in this period without thinking about Birbijan and its importance. Uh, and it's also strange because, you know, demographically, very, very few Jews ever go there, right? So it's hard to make... It's hard to make a case, right, that this is a source of significant and, you know, like truly important center of production of Jewish culture in the same way that Soviet Minsk is in the 1920s, right, which is very heavily Jewish, an important center for Yiddish scholarship in the Soviet Union, for Yiddish literature, stuff like this. Uh, So... In this chapter, I take that as a point of departure. <laughs> what if we think about Abirabijan as a place where Jews are supposed to arrive but never do? <laughs> right? So I write about the Soviet Jew and the non-arrival <laughs> in the in Birbijan by focusing on narratives that dwell in this non-arrival that are doing their seemingly best to describe what Birbijan is like and what it would be like for Jews to live there, what the Jews there are like, and come very close to describing Jews in Birbijan, and then they pull back and don't describe Jews. Because there are no Jews to describe, I think. <laughs> right? But I'm interested in the kind of rhetorical moves between trying to write what can't be written about, therefore, in the process of writing, exposing <laughs> right, non-arrival and non-presence as itself the, the important you know, in the case of my book, attribute of what the Soviet Jew is, how the Soviet Jew is made. So I write about, um, I'm, you know, my point of departure is this expedition in 1929, which is very early uh, after this region is proclaimed to be a Jewish territory. Uh, expedition that really happened, you know, it's a historic event, historical event that, that was sent over by by Jews from North America, actually, uh, and had, you know, was really staffed by Americans. Uh, not all of them Jews. Uh, the, the, the one of the head of the expedition was the president of the Brigham Young University from Utah, who was an agronomist and a soil specialist. For a while, I was on this wild goose chase. It's not in the book, thank God, but I was very interested in Mormons and trying to figure out what the Mormons were thinking about Birbijan, if they were thinking about Birbijan as some kind of a strange, you know, promised land that would be important to them. Uh, I didn't, I didn't end up any, any, with anything. There's nothing like this in the book, but uh, I was for a while reading <laughs> things about Mormons. Uh, so, uh, so this expedition happened, and uh, it produced a number of official texts, you know, reports, you know, journalistic publications, things like that. And I'm interested in, in, in a couple of writers who accompanied it uh, as, as journalists, uh, Victor Fink and, uh, and uh, Simeon Gecht. Uh, uh, 
and who then went on to write about it in different formats. And I tried to kind of go through those formats. So between a genre that's sort of known as a kind of literary sketch, which is a very peculiar, kind of really very pervasive genre in the Soviet period at the time, something which is sort of a mix between reportage and, you know, but filled with literary flourishes, uh, where Victor Fink, it's called Jews in the Taiga, right? So kind of indicating that the 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 the, the subject is Jews in Birbijan, where he is much more fascinated by Cossacks who had been there for three generations until then. He talks to them. He is very interested in kind of seeing what happened to them. Uh, and in many ways, I think, writes about them as something that's kind of like a cautionary tale for Jews. He's not calling it that, but I'm reading his intense attention to Cossacks and non-Jews in the book that's called Jews and the Taiga is itself a kind of an important giveaway. And then I write about Simon Gert, who wrote a novel <laughs> about Birbijan uh, or about somebody's uh, sort of supposed journey there that's very circuitous and takes this character from Odessa to Palestine uh, in the 1920s and his attempt to kind of make it uh, as a Zionist. And then, you know, his disappointment, the Soviet ideology would dictate for it to be, and his relocation to Birbijan, except that we never see him arrive in Birbijan. So that to me is also an important question. And also Gert wrote a children's short story that I write about, uh, about Beribijan. And he also wrote other stuff that I kind of refer to, but don't engage with. He wrote a play, sort of went on for a while, <laughs> right? So I'm sort of curious in these kinds of sources. So non-arrival in a place that was designated as a home for the figure of the Soviet Jew. So the figure of the Soviet Jew as existing in official Soviet discourses versus how I read it as, the, as how I read non-arrival as one of the attributes of how I understand the Soviet Jew to be made. And in chapter four, you turn from literature then to Soviet Jewish films, um, specifically the first Yiddish Russian talkie, Nosson Becker for Daheim. Um, so can you talk more about chapter four and what role does this, this film and other films play in the making of the Soviet Jew in your reading? <laughs> Uh, yeah, thank you. Uh, so, uh, pro kind of film, it, this is one of, this is the key film for that chapter, but there are also others uh, that I think about. There is Seekers of Happiness, uh, a film that's actually about Berbijan, and a couple of others that I reference here and there. Uh, and this is a 1932 film, uh, the screenplay for which was written by Peretz Markish, you know, a major uh Yiddish poet, <laughs> who is also executed in 1952, 70 years ago, at the same time as David Bergelson. Uh, and Peretz Markish also, uh, after writing the screenplay, also wrote a novel that's based on the film. Uh, that's also an important <laughs> kind of con context for this. Uh, and uh, I tried to, I was really inspired to read this film deeply after kind of reading some film study scholarship uh, uh, by Lili Kaganowski, uh, among others, but especially Lili Kaganowski, who is a colleague at UCLA, uh, who wrote a really important book about Stalinism and sound cinema, uh, and particularly the introduction of sound technology as um, itself being an important marker of the 
how ideology could be captured and spread, uh, right? So where, and I write about this in the chapter too, right? So uh, people who make this film had been involved in very um, sort of out there modernist productions through the 1920s, uh, made experimental things, and then they find their way to something which is seems to be like a kind of proto-social real, socialist realist, you know, propaganda. Uh, virtually film so i'm curious about the kind of carryover from those modernist aesthetics into into socialist realism uh and sound is one of the ways to do this so the challenge for filmmakers soviet filmmakers also others but in in the soviet case we kind of know this uh from from this recent scholarship uh you know the the most kind of famous ones, Sergei Eisenstein, Sergei Vertov, right, the ones that are known to the Western viewer, had made their name as the as the filmmakers who worked in the silent era and really theorized film as a silent genre who were really worried <laughs> about the introduction of sound and what it would do uh, to narrative and approaches to film. Uh, and, you know, one of the concerns was that the it was going to be much more um, sort of over the top in needing to be clear about what the characters were saying ideologically and what the narrative was saying ideologically. Whereas in, you know, an Eisenstein, you know, montage of the mid 1920s, it's left up to the viewer to, to be, I mean, very, very, very heavy handed, of course, but, uh, the viewer still has an important role to put the pieces together. When you have a talkie, somebody tells you, right? So I'm, uh, after Lili Kaganowski, I'm very interested, was very interested in looking at this film and specifically at speaking uh, and, and non-speaking <laughs> that, that happens or doesn't happen uh, in place where we get to, you know, a socialist realist talkie where a character can is supposed to state, you know, an ideological claim and explain a meaning of what, in his case, a move to the Soviet Union means. Nelson Becker had left the shtetl in Ukraine sometime before the revolution. Uh, and he uh, was a bricklayer in New York, right? So we get a sense of him as being somehow... Um, compromised by capitalism and compromised by capitalism, capitalist labor practices, by exploitation, uh, such that he became, you know, a propagandist for basically capitalist approaches to labor. Uh, and here he is back in his homestead with his father, who is played by Solomon Mikhoyles, uh, a you know, really hugely important uh, Soviet Jewish culture figure who is assassinated in 1948. Um, and, uh, you know, now it's Soviet construction. So there's a you know, Soviet factory being built. And, you know, the, the, so the main ideological premise of the film is, you know, who can lay more bricks in a given section, which, which is a very boring sounding, you know, very stereotypically Soviet plot. Uh, and Nelson Becker challenges the Soviets to sort of duel, you know, how they're going to work, and they work for an eight-hour shift, and, you know, he builds a smaller wall, as, you know, was expected, because he doesn't know how to work correctly, and, and the Soviet 
very Slavic looking upright uh, worker builds a bigger wall. Uh, and then the film becomes weird because like this competition is set in a circus. And that to me is already like, what is going on? Like, why are they in the circus, you know, laying bricks? This is not productive labor. You know, this is, you know, like, what is it supposed to mean? Why are there spectators arranged around the kind of circus? So, so I, and then there's a lot about circus in the, in the Soviet context. So I'm trying to think about, and towards the end of the film, Nathan Becker stops being able to speak. Um, and he begins to hum a nigan that, uh, Sala, his father, uh, who is a stutterer, had been humming throughout the film. Uh, and so I read some things for this chapter, and I quote them about stutter and about singing uh, and sort of what, what singing does to people who stutter and have very speech impediments and what it you know, can tell us about Nosenbecker, Nosenbecker's body uh, as a sort of, you know, kind of taking apart of what was supposed to be some kind of Soviet masculinity and instead becomes this sort of much more ambiguous figure. So how, you know, a place that was supposed to Sovietize Nosenbecker, changes labor practices, make him a new Soviet man, instead makes him into something that's, you know, contains, you know, in its traces, right, of this Soviet effort, but also carries in it, as I describe it, the traces both of the pale that he'd left, pale of settlement he'd left before the revolution, layered over by, you know, his couple of decades of living in in the West. Uh, so how all of that is schlepped back to the Soviet Union and what's now made of it. Fascinating. Really amazing. Okay, so finally, let's return to Isaac Babu who you discussed extensively in Chapter 5. I'm particularly interested in how you analyze Babel's work as a means to, I think, de-essentialize previous constructions of Russian Jewishness. You've talked about this before. As somewhat separated parts towards a more hybrid understanding of it. Um, this is This also comes to the fore, particularly in your linguistic analysis of the text that I'm really excited about, especially as a scholar of Yiddish. Um, I'm excited about the way you approach your sources for the figure of the Soviet Jew, and I quote, neither as separately Russian nor separately Yiddish, but instead, as always, already Russian Yiddish. Um, yeah, can you please elaborate, um, maybe with the help of Babel in Chapter 5? Yeah, no, thank you. It's great to kind of circle back to the, you know, <laughs> to this question. So, you know, Isaac Babel is enormous, and he's enormously important Uh in thinking about Soviet Jewishness, and others have, right? So uh, when I first began thinking about the book, I thought this is the first chapter. Isaac Weibert is the first chapter because that was my chronologically my first interest. And there's a way, as since you've read the book, you know that that chapter does also begin chronologically in, in 1917, 1918. Uh, before then, when I was beginning to think of a dissertation, I thought that my entire dissertation was going to be about Isaac Babel, or rather that one particular sentence from Isaac Babel was going to be my table of contents for the dissertation. Thank God that, you know, I, I was set straight and not allowed to do this. Uh, because, and this is kind of, you know, I'm only half joking, I think for scholars who have become fascinated by the complexity of Isaac Babel enough to dedicate entire works only to him, 
there is some heavy sense of the unfinality and finalizability, I can't pronounce the word correctly, of Isaac Babel. Because he was arrested in 1939 and executed in 1940, his manuscripts were arrested with him. People have been searching for those papers for all of those decades. Nothing was ever found. There were all kinds of rumors about what he had been working on at the time. So there are a couple of people who have tried writing biographies and aren't able to finish them. So I'm keeping my fingers crossed for one by Grisha Fradin, uh, who is Professor Emeritus at Stanford, who read my chapter, gave, gave, gave it its blessing, uh, and told me that he's close to finishing his book. So I'm really keeping my fingers crossed that he actually finishes a biography of Bible. He wrote a really important book about Osset Meidlstam in the 1980s. So if it's anything like that book, this is going to be really major. Uh, so for me, I kind of knew that it had to be, I had to have a, very clear question in mind and a limited question. And then, of course, it opened up on a chapter that I think is like 65 pages long, right? That's still very hard to to, to write succinctly. So what is that question uh, without going into the weeds of this? Uh, uh, Isaac Bible published a very early story in 1918, just a couple of years after he began writing, uh, after he'd moved from Odessa where he grew up, uh, to to Petrograd uh, during during the First World War, uh, and you know then of course became Leningrad. Uh, but he writes a story in 1918, and it's called Shabbos Nachamu. Uh, and Shabbos Nachamu is Shabbat Nachamu is it's the Sabbath after Tisha uh, B'Av, the or Tisha B'Av in Yiddish, after the the fast day commemorating the destruction of the ancient temples in Jerusalem, you know, a day of mourning, a day that's kind of paradigmatic in Jewish cultural consciousness, historical consciousness is a day of destruction. Uh, and Shabbos Nachem with the Sabbath that comes after it is a Sabbath of comforting, right? That's what it means. Uh, uh, that, you know, we kind of transition back to, to, to a cycle of life that isn't shaped by mourning. So uh, in, in Isaac Babel's story, is, it's, it's an adaptation a very Babelian <laughs> adaptation of a folkloric story about Herschel Astropolier, the Yiddish trickster uh, from uh, 18th century, starting you know, from the 18th century Jewish folklore uh, in Eastern Europe. Herschel Astropolier, who was a real life person who had been a butcher in the town in Ukraine called Ostropol, was kind of run out of town. Uh, people didn't like his jokes and he was kind of wandering around until he landed in the court of Rebbe Borohol uh, uh, in, um, uh, in um, Medzibosh, or uh in, in Ukrainian. Uh, and this, you know, an important leader of a Hasidic dynasty that was dedicated to, you know, kind of, bringing joy into Jewish life was depressed and melancholic and, you know, required, you know, required a, a gesture essentially to, to lift his spirit. So Herschel was a gesture to this powerful figure. So I'm kind of interested in this kind of subversive humor um, to, to, you know, what does a gesture do to the figure in power? You know, I don't think of Bible as a gesture to Stalin. I don't write about it this way, but I'm curious, right. If this is sort of one of our paradigms here, uh, 
But, uh, you know, the story is uh, very early. It had been dismissed by other scholars as juvenilia, uh, as Bible kind of trying out different things before he settles on his great, you know, uh, sort of approaches to the way that he writes in this very sui generis style uh, about the Soviet experience. Uh, uh, but instead, I read it as a story where everything begins for Isaac Bible uh, and doesn't let up. <laughs> so, uh, you know, if in the rest of the book I'm concerned with traces of the pale across the Soviet landmass but also across early Soviet culture. Here, it's the traces of Herschele, of this folkloric Yiddish trickster from, you know, Yiddish culture, from the pale, pre-revolutionary pale that Bible schleps into the Soviet project. And along with him, on several important, important uh, through several important flashpoints of that project, as he captures in his work. So I think about... Uh, the story Shabbos Nachamu is about the kind of immediate post-revolutionary context uh, of, you know, post-revolution wartime, you know, hungry, cold Petrograd and how Bible brings that figure of Shabbos Nachamu, of comforting <laughs> into that kind of post-apocalyptic landscape. Uh, I think about 1920, which you know, is known in case of Isaac Bible as the Polish-Bolshevik War uh, or the War of 1920, uh, but could be thought of and should be thought of uh, as part of the Russian Civil War, uh, of the broader violence of the kind of post-revolutionary um, 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 hostilities. Uh, and I think about Isaac Bible's Red Cavalry and the way that he brings the figure of Herschel into Red Cavalry uh, in to me, really very important subversive mentions uh, that allow me to kind of read that work linguistically as a Russian work that has an implied Yiddish original that describes in Russian things that could only happen in Yiddish and how translating them back into Yiddish, so to speak, translating them back into Yiddish, allows us to think about how the figure of the Soviet Jew always thinks in two languages. Uh, and then, right, bringing the, the uh, bringing th this figure into the early 1930s and into Stalinism as a cipher for what other people could understand with the help of this Jewish folkloric texture. And here I think about Bible thinking, for example, about the famine in Ukraine, uh, the Holodomor uh, in Ukraine, uh, as as an event that Bible attempted to report on, like the traces of his travels to Ukrainian countryside and his inability to write about it, uh, and how we can see traces of it in things that he did write and did publish, uh, where again, <laughs> I see traces of Herschelet and the trickster who is able to bring some other story into the story that is ostensibly being told. So Soviet Jew is a trickster. Uh, you know, I, I end the book here, right? I mean, there's also an epilogue, but like the core of the book ends here. Uh, you know, but in some ways, you know, like it's maybe the trickster part is the, is the one that like continues to persist most clearly further into the Soviet period, but also into post-Soviet period with various, you know, satirists especially. Great. Um, so 
my final question. I would just like to know if you're working on any new project that I can wait for and um, yeah, if you can share it with us. Sure. So I think what's happening is what happened you know, with this first book, right, is that while procrastinating about needing to write another monograph, uh, I'm back to translating. Uh, and I think that in the same way that translating Bjelgosen was so intellectually vital to my learning what I didn't know <laughs> about the book that I thought I needed to write and then rethinking the book that I was writing is I think and hope will happen again So with this new translation. So I'm working again with Harriet Morav. We have struck a successful and enduring partnership, which is also very fun. Uh, we are working together on a book that we're tentatively calling In the Shadow of the Holocaust, short fiction by, Soviet Jewish, by Jewish writers from the Soviet Union. Uh, that's kind of our working title. And we are translating works by eight different writers. Uh, they're short stories, uh, who some of whom, about half, it's about half and half, half of whom wrote in Russian and half of whom wrote in Yiddish. Right, so we are. There is no such collection at present that puts uh, Russian and Yiddish in the same between the same two covers as a you know literary anthology of sorts. Uh, and uh, you know our beginning point is immediately after the war and our first writer is David Bergelson, who is, of course, our own old love, uh, and his story on Ada's Witness from 1946, written immediately after the war, and a story very much about translation. Uh, and uh, we then go go through uh, through Itza Kipnis uh, and Shmuel Gordon, uh, Rivka Rubin, uh, and Shira Gorshman in Yiddish, uh, and a wonderful um, Odessa-born writer who wrote the story that we're translating is about Odessa called Dina Kalinovskaya, who wrote in Russian. Uh, Simeon Gert, uh, also an Odessa writer, but the story is not about Odessa. Uh, and we end with Margarita Hemlin, uh, who is the only post-Soviet author who was born in 1916 in Chernihiv in Ukraine, died, sadly, in 2015. Uh, and we're looking at her at one story, one of her stories uh, that's from, you know, the turn of the century, turn of the new century, 2007 or so. Uh, so really thinking about what it means to write in the shadow of the Holocaust, which in the Soviet case means not necessarily writing about the Holocaust directly because of ideological pressures, right? What does it mean to, in cases of Yiddish authors that we write about, that we translate, sorry, uh, for the most part, their work in Yiddish was also translated into Russian uh, and published in the Soviet Union in Russian, uh, often authorized translations by the authors themselves. So we are very interested as translators into English <laughs> of tracing the the sort of linguistic differences between the Yiddish original and the Russian authorized Russian translation, what it skips over and what it reframes. Uh so my hunch is that this is the beginning of, you know, if I were to write, you know, another book, 
you know, I could think of it as how the Soviet Jew was made part two, <laughs> where, where I think about the, you know, kind of the post-war period in the Cold War in this kind of Russian language slash Yiddish Russian, Yiddish language context in the Soviet Union. But also, uh, you know, I, 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 I had written before about contemporary immigrant literature. Uh, and I think that's also still interesting to me as a kind of coda to to this kind of mostly Cold War, post-Second post World War frame book, where, again, I'm curious to think about the figure of the Soviet Jew is being shaped now by very different forces than those that shaped it in the 1920s and 1930s. And in this case, you know, forces that have to do with, uh, you know, the Soviet Jewry movement uh, and the framing of Soviet Jews as actors in much bigger Cold War dramas uh, than being only about Jews, uh, etc. So we'll see. Wow. Um, this is a great way to end this wonderful conversation and really something big to look forward to. Um, yeah, I would like to thank you for taking the time to um, talking to me today. Um, this was Sasha Zenderovich, and we were talking about his new book, How the Soviet Jew Was Made, which came out earlier this year with Harvard University Press. In my mind, It is mandatory reading, so go read it, use it in your classrooms and buy it for your libraries. Um, thank you so much, Sasha, again. Um, and thank you to our listeners for tuning in. This is Miriam Scholli schulz for the New Books Network. Seid gesund. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.